to sitting here at midnight And I've been sitting here till noon You see my lady left me lonely Yes she did Baby left me blue Welcome to the Steal My Name Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It is episode 10. Yay! Yay! Round pats on the back, fanfare, the peasants rejoice, all of that. Made it to 10. Feels good. I know it's only 10. Hopefully it'll be, you know, the first 10 of many tenses. Uh, Whatever the tense is, like a murder of tens or, you know, like a parliament of tens. Like a parliament of tens. So there'll be many more episodes to come, but I figured for episode 10 we'll, we'll do something a little fun. A little... A little big, a little grand. And as I said last week, this is going to be a big one. So I've done two movies, four movies, one movie. So fuck it. Let's just do five. Let's just go absolutely crazy. I think if you're a movie fan, the the worst thing a person can ask you, and it's strangely enough one of the most common questions that you get asked is, what's your favorite movie? Well, that's that's impossible. That That's really an almost impossible answer to give. So for years... I, I always have to follow it up, well, what genre? Is it my favorite comedy, my favorite action movie, my favorite horror movie? And usually even then, if they'll narrow it down and say, fine, Bob, you, you're a huge fucking nerd, we get it. What's your favorite horror movie? I can't give just one. I have a top three that I always give. Uh, in third place, In the Mouth of Madness. In second place, Dawn of the Dead slash Day of the Dead, depending on my mood, but it's usually Dawn of the Dead. But the number one spot for me has always been occupied by the Phantasm series. And it's not just one of them. For me, it always, I have, I look at them as a, a whole, as the first four. Yes, I know there's five, and we'll get to that one eventually. But I, I look at it as four films, uh, as, as a whole, as one movie, as my number one top spot. So this is going to be a big one. This is going to be a long episode, so I've got my tea. I hope you've got uh, a beverage of your choice. I can't uh, recommend either way which way you should go, but uh, strap in, get comfy. Uh, if you're if you're in a car, uh, take the long way. Uh, if you're in transit, try to move away from anyone that stinks too much. If you're sitting comfortably at home, put your feet up, and let's dive into the world of Phantasm. So I've had a long relationship with the Phantasm franchise. It's, it wasn't the first movies that I saw, part of that first round, but it was part of my early film education. And I've, I've been lucky enough to meet people involved with the movie. When I was in college in 2005, my friend Hayden and I, we went to Cinema Wasteland in Ohio. And it wasn't just to meet one of the actors, but that was kind of our primary, or my at least, primary motivation for going. And I went and met uh, Reggie Bannister. And... Just acted like a magoo. I have a photo here uh, somewhere of us, and I just look like such a goober. I got to meet him again years later. He was, uh, when I was working at Rue Morgue, he was in town for a screening of the first Phantasm. 
and he came into the office and everyone in the office knew that I was a big fan, that I was a serious phantasm freak. So he comes into the office and they're all kind of ribbing me. They're like, oh, Bobby's on his way. Oh, Bob, he's, he's, he's at the front door. And as soon as he steps in the eye, I can't remember who it was, ran back into the room I was working in. They're like, he's here, Bob, he's here. And they bring him back to meet me. And it was Dave Alexander, Yovanka, or somebody said, you know, he's, he's, this is Bob, he's our intern, he's, you know, the gigantic fan. And so many things in my head I wanted to say, the serious, smart things. You know, Mr. Bannister, I've, it's such a pleasure. Your films have meant so much to me and inspired me in my career choices. Instead, I just kind of like my hands flopped on the keyboard that I was working on and I stood up and just like open mouth, just sad. I just I fanned right out. I, I can't keep it together around these guys. When Don Coscarelli was in town for uh, I think it was Festival of Fear and we were doing a screening. Yeah, I think it was that or might have been the John Dies at the End screening. One of the two. Anyway. I went to one of the events where he was in, Dave again, thank you Dave, you always got my back with Phantasm stuff, brought me up to meet him, and of course I'm just vibrating, just vibrating. This is Don Coscarelli, like this is, this is a huge deal for me. I know people, if you're not overly familiar with the franchise, but for me this was huge, this is, this is the guy, this is patient zero of Phantasm. So I shake his hand. I'm, like, I'm a filmmaker. I went to film school because of, I wanted to say your films, but instead I said because of Phantasm. And he just kind of stops in the middle of signing my magazine, which I have here on the wall. And he's like, whoa, 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 let's slow down a minute. Phantasm is basically a student film, but I really appreciate it. And of course, I'm like, oh, I just fucking embarrass myself for a dog Coscarelli. But he was so warm and gracious. But to get us back to on track, so my first exposure to the franchise, I actually came to it in kind of a roundabout way. And again, it's another thing I can thank my dad for, because I've talked about before how my history of horror kind of started with my dad, because he insisted that I see Hellraiser 3 instead of body bags, and it pushed me in that direction. So what happened was when I got really started getting into horror in you know grade 9, 10, it was always over at Blockbuster getting movies, going through all the big franchises, and I wanted to move on to the next one. So I went to to the movie store with my folks and went to get the first Phantasm. And I'm talking to them about it, this is what I want to get. And in typical dad fashion, he's like, no, put the first one back. Get the newest one. That's the way you should go. Always get the newest one. Not understanding if there's a connected mythology, none of that. Just in his mind, get the new one. That's what you should do. So I actually saw Phantasm for first. And I'm I'm going to talk about how that impacted my relationship with the franchise a little later on. But that's where was my starting point. I didn't start at the first film. So I've always had a slight disconnect with the first movie because it while great, it is completely different than every anything that would follow it. Now I could go through each of these movies and just scene by scene break down every little minutiae detail, but it's not really what I'm after. It's not really what I'm after with this show as a whole. It's more just kind of my experience with these films and with the series as a whole. There will be fun facts along the way because I do have an unfortunately huge amount of information in my head at any given time about Phantasm. And part of that is 
the amount of copies of these films that I own. There, there's obviously, especially nowadays with DVD and Blu-ray and all these boutique companies doing wonderful releases and re-releases, there's so many versions of these films to have. The first Phantasm, oddly enough, despite not being my favorite of the series, is the one film that I own the most copies of. I own five copies of the first Phantasm. And it started with the MGM cassette, the VHS that they released in the early 2000s when they got the rights to the series. And we actually ordered it. Uh, My mom, for my birthday or Christmas, ordered uh, through Blockbuster the first and fourth film for me because MGM had those. So I had that copy. As soon as MGM released their DVD of it, I got that one as well, which is what I got signed in Ohio by Reggie when I met him the first time. I then, when Blockbuster started selling off their VHS, I actually bought the copy from there, which is the first copy I actually ever saw of Phantasm. And then subsequent DVDs, when Anchor Bay released their copy, I bought that because it has a new bonus feature on it. And then I got a copy of the the remastered version that Bad Robot did. So that's... I, I have so many freaking copies of this movie. But you can't... You find yourself just kind of amassing these things. And I could go crazier. There's lots of movies in my collection that I own, both the VHS and the DVD for. Because in some cases, the the VHSs were just bad prints, and the DVDs cleaned it up, or I got them because I wanted the special features or the commentary tracks. And you just learn and study over the years, study as you go. Now... The story, I'll try and give an abbreviated version of how the first Phantasm came to be. Now, Don Coscarelli, the writer-director of the series, of the first four, he's been making films since he was a very young man. He made his first feature film when he was 17, with a film called Jim the World's Greatest. And he was the youngest, one of the youngest, if not the youngest director in history to have a film bought by a major studio. I think it was Universal or Paramount or somebody, or Warner Brothers, bought the film and put it out. He then... You know, just scraping money together. His dad helped him put in money. They did a second film called Kenny and Company. And that is really where the genesis of Phantasm started. Because he had met Angus Scrim, Rory Guy, who plays the tall man on Jim the World's Greatest. And then in Kenny and Company, it had Reggie was in it. It's also where he met A. Michael Baldwin, who played Mike in the series. When they came time to do a third film, what they wanted to do next... Coscarelli got to thinking about a scene that was in Kenny and Company, and it's when they're going into a haunted house. And there's a great scare moment in there, and he remembered that the entire audience jumped, that everybody was got a huge reaction out of that scene specifically in the film. So neither of the first two films really set the world on fire, so when it came time to do a third one, he wanted to do something that obviously he was interested in, but you also want to pick something that you have a higher chance of getting a return on your investment. So he decided to make a horror movie. Now, he'd been a lifelong monster kid fan of horror movies, so it seemed a natural progression to do this. So that's how the script for the first film kind of came together. It was a combination of his interest in this kind of clinical and really disconnected approach we have as a Western world, the way we look at death. You know, you have this suited undertaker comes and swoops your loved one's body away to behind closed doors where they do some things to it, where this kind of unnatural process occurs. 
and then taking that idea and then ideas he came up with while he had secluded himself away in a cabin for a couple weeks, came up with the script for Phantasm, which they then proceeded to shoot over the course of an entire year, shooting on weekends. And so that's how we, we end up with the first film. Now, I've talked before, uh, a couple weeks ago, about this idea of all, most if not all horror films, they have some kind of buy-in, okay? Something that you have to be sold in order to progress and enjoy the story. Whether it's a, a monster or a fantastical setting or some kind of supernatural concept, they they have to convince you to get into this idea. And this film has those elements. It has these supernatural elements. But with the first film, and I say this with all the love in the world for this film. Do not get me wrong when I say this. But one of the buy-ins you have to have with the first Phantasm is uh, you have to accept a certain level of cheesiness, especially when it comes to the acting. And while this can and does make for some kind of unintentional laughs in some moments, and it's something that's not unique to Phantasm. It's something that happens all the time with low-budget filmmaking. Look at the history of low-budget films. You're, you're going to find cheesy, silly performances littered throughout. But despite that, it's what gives this film and the franchise going forward a lot of its charm. And one of the major successful things about this series is this easygoing chemistry that the actors have with each other. While the performances, especially in the first one, are can be a little rough, uh, a little goofy, you still get the sense that these three people are friends, our main heroes. So we have Actually, stop. Let's do a synopsis. Damn it. I keep getting ahead of myself. I'm too excited talking about Phantasm. Fuck. So, Phantasm from 1979 stars A. Michael Baldwin as Mike, Bill Thornbury as his brother Jody, and Reggie Bannister as Reggie, their loyal ice cream vendor friend. So, synopsis. A teenage boy and his friends face off against a mysterious grave robber known as the Tall Man. Yeah, that tracks. That works. So... In terms of the the actors appearing as friends, you you buy despite some silliness. I buy the fact that Jody and Mike are brothers. They have a real easygoing family vibe to how they act. Reggie feels like their buddy. They just the three of them work together so well in this movie and their incredible loyalty and concern for each other is the central thing that works here in this film. Because I came to the franchise backwards, I and and even I think without that, I was never really invested in the first film. I know, I know it sounds like it sounds like a sin that I'm saying that, but it's true, just to be completely honest. And I know for a lot of people, one of the major appeals at the time, and even to this day, is this brother relationship that uh, Mike and Jody share. Now, in parts three and four, yes, this relationship worked for me. But here it just it doesn't have much of an impact on me. It it still doesn't when I watch the film. Because this one is so different 
than the others in the series because it's tonally different, uh, thematically the vibes, everything is very different in this first one. It's an isolated creature in the scope of the rest of the franchise. I I tend to look at it that way. I I treat it as not an anomaly, but I kind of put it off to the side with itself. I don't watch it as much as the others uh, unless I'm sitting down to do a full marathon, but it's still you know, I, I feel like I'm just kind of slipping all over myself to say that I'm not a big fan of the first movie. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not. I know that so many, like everything stems from here. You know, the franchise wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a franchise, obviously, if you didn't have a first film. But it's just, it's never been my favorite. But there are lots of things about this movie that I do genuinely love. One of the things that I love about it is that it's a young man's film. It's full of big ideas and big concepts and this sense of not really caring if they came together in a coherent way and having the confidence to not care about that, to just say the hell with it. We'll just, it'll just add to this overall dreamlike aesthetic that the first Phantasm has. And that's what makes this film, I think, it's what made it a classic and it what, it's what still drives its success today is that it manages to make you feel like you're having a bad dream. And it captures that nightmare idea in a way that not a lot of other franchises can get away with. Um, even the Nightmare on Elm Street series, I don't think is as successful as the first Phantasm, where you're really not sure, are the characters awake? Are they dreaming? The reality of the film is so disjointed the the supernatural elements are alternately played down and then played up, and they're just kind of dealing with this craziness. It doesn't seem to phase them a lot. These crazy things that they're seeing and having to deal with, they just kind of go on about the issue of getting it taken care of. Kind of like you would in a bad dream. You know, we've all been there where you, upon waking... You're like, that's fucking crazy. There's no way all those situations and scenarios and people could have all come together to create this narrative. But at the time when you're having the dream, it feels perfectly normal, perfectly rational and reasonable what you're going through. And that's what this film really captures. And as it was made by a young man and as a young, when I was a young man myself, having made some movies, it's, they, it's just kind of a go for it sense that fuck it attitude they have. We need actors. Cast the people we know. Hey, they're musicians. Have them play music in the movie. That's the song you heard off the hop. That's uh, Bill Thornbury and Reggie singing a early version of Bill Thornbury's song, Sitting Here at Midnight. Just this total sense of confidence that no matter what you want to try, it's going to work. We can, we're going to build sets and do all these crazy effects that we have no real training for. We're just going to get our friends together and just make a movie. One of the big things about this, the first one, again, another thing that I love, and it's something that the franchise as a whole I've always found incredibly appealing, is that it didn't revolve around a final girl. Now, that's not meant as an insult. Uh, that concept or trope is some of my favorite movies, absolute favorite horror movies of all time have that. You you know, the Halloween series, Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like just, just to name a few. But 
to see a film, especially as a young man, where you're just seeing these regular guys. There's nothing special about them. They're not cops or soldiers or SWAT trained or anything like that. They're not overly fit or skilled. They're just thrown into this larger-than-life situation, and the only thing that's going to get them out of it is their courage and their loyalty to each other. That's all that's going to see them through this. Now, I would be remiss, and you can't talk about Phantasm, especially the first film, without discussing the tall man, Angus Scrim. Now, I, I never got to meet Angus Scrim. I have an autograph from him that my friend James got for me. Thanks, James. Uh, you're the man. Uh, but anytime I would watch an interview or a documentary, behind the scenes, anything, you just love whenever he'd talk. Because he's one of those actors, and I think you find this a lot, especially in horror, where they, in real life, these people couldn't be any farther from the characters that they portray on screen. The tall man is so menacing and mysterious and dignified and regal and unknowable and terrifying. But Angus Grimm in real life is this very soft-spoken, dignified gentleman. He He's a Grammy Award winner. He wrote liner notes uh, for, for albums. He's a scholar, and he speaks multiple languages. He's just so wonderful. But when you see him turn on this performance as the tall man, it's just this otherworldly creature that we see, especially in the first one, because... There's this real sense, especially in the first one, because we're not, Coscarelli and co. aren't out to answer any questions about the tall man's backstory or history. It's just one clue after another. And anytime you think you're about to get an answer, it just opens more questions or creates more questions about just what the hell is this guy? But it manages, by doing that, it manages to create such a larger-than-life villain on a way smaller-than-life budget. Because you can't have, you know, these big, huge action set pieces or like a Nightmare on Elm Street, the big nightmare scenes to really establish what Freddy can do, you you have to rely on these smaller, tiny little things. And they use that so effectively here to hint at how otherworldly uh, this threat is. He's got, he looks like a man, but he's got yellow blood. If you cut his fingers off, they act independently of his body and they can transmogrify into other animal, other creatures, the hilarious little insect. Then we have the, the dimension forks, the, the red dimension that we get a glimpse of. Now we're looking at other planets, other realities, his dual persona of with the lady in lavender, that he's becoming a woman to seduce men, which creates a great gender dynamic there, which they weren't afraid to tackle at all. They just put that right out there that, yeah, he was this character the whole time. That means he was out there having sex with dudes to kill them. That's fucking wonderful because they don't, that's not played for a goof or a laugh or anything like that. It's just creepy because it means the tall man could be anybody. He could be anywhere. He could be anything. He's an omnipresent evil. Yes, he has henchmen. He has the dwarf creatures that run around the, the not Jawas. 
you know, he's got the, the wonderful spheres. That is such an inspired weapon, you know, because whenever you're creating a new villain, it's always, well, what's his, what's his pointy object? You know, is it a chainsaw? Is it claws? Is it a machete? Is it an ax? Is it a knife? It's got to be, or, you know, chains with hooks on them. It's got to be something pokey that he can stick people with. You know, that's kind of, that's, well, the tall man has loftier goals. Usually we're kind of boiling some things down to, well, at some point he has to pierce a human body. So what's he going to do it with? And the spheres are so great because there's nothing else like them. It's not like, oh man, look how different this is. He's using a chainsaw or, oh, he's got a machete this time. No, the spheres are unique in the history of horror. I can't think of another film, maybe the puzzle box in Hellraiser, but they're so unique and so fucking ambitious. Like you've got nothing. You've got no money. No, this is all pre-CG. You don't have the money for big blue screens, anything like that. But we have to have this fear that stuff pokes out of it and it flies around and interacts with the cast. Fuck it. We'll do it live. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And that's the joy of something like this and and low budget filmmaking as a whole is you get to watch these filmmakers just flying by the seat of their pants and you know their balls in the air pun intended is how the hell do we figure this out and that goes right down to the end of the film you know it's everybody knows at this point it has the famous you know double dream ending it would be so easy to call cop out on and then the character wakes up, and it turns out it was just a dream. And that's not something new that Coscarelli came up with. That's an old storytelling trope. And it could have easily been cheap and cheesy if they had just left it at that. And I remember watching the film the first time and thinking, really? It's just a dream? Like, But now, I guess because I couldn't really be surprised, because I, I knew it wasn't just a dream, because there's other sequels. But I could imagine the audience's reaction at the time, like, we went through all that, and it's just a dream? And wait, Reggie's alive again? And But wait, Jody's the one that's dead this time? Did And, and no one's heard of the tall man? What the fuck is this craziness? But then right at the end, you know, Mike closes the, the closet door, and we see the tall man, boy, and pulls him through the glass. Just perfect. He gets you. He's ahead of us at every turn. And that's so joyous to find a film like that. Well, it's not my favorite of the series. It's those elements that make this film that I think, I don't know if I really want to watch the first Phantasm. And then every time I go back and watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, this movie's pretty boss. Sure, it's not the sequels, but that's why it works. Because at every turn, Coscarelli knows what he's doing, is confident that he's going to keep you, the story ahead of us, that he, we, can't, we can't get ahead of a movie like Phantasm because of its dream, dream logic, its nightmare kind of vibe to it, and you don't know what the hell's going to happen at any point, but not in a way that feels cheap, like he's just pulling the rug out from under you just to fuck with you at every turn. This feels even though it's a combination of pre-planning and luck, it's it feels so thought out in the way that it all kind of coalesced, that he managed to take all these disparate 
pot elements and cheesy effects and weird performances, but it all gels into this perfect nightmare that I'm sure in 78 just it blew it obviously blew people's mind the film is a huge success because there's really nothing else like it this the first film especially but this franchise as a whole it's unique in horror which I think will probably bring us oh no wait I should talk about the music because the music is again another phenomenal element and so many of these perfect elements were started in this first film the the theme by Fred Myro is so simple that it's it's easy to dismiss like okay well it's just those quick notes but as soon as you hear that melody once you're like oh shit this is something it has that vibe like the Nightmare on Elm Street theme Halloween especially Friday the Thirteenth even though it's more sound design or a motif same with Jaws in a similar vein but it's just this driving theme this where it becomes almost hypnotic because there's so many variances that they can do with it and it's it's actually the only thing i know how to play on a guitar i remember sitting at uh, my friend dawson's house over a couple of days and just picked up the guitar right-handed so it's the wrong way in my hand and just started for hours picking at notes to try and figure out the theme so that I can play the theme and I'm a little rusty at it, but after a little bit of practice, I can, I can usually still play it. So that's, it's again, I, I talked a bit of shit here off the hop about how this, well, not my favorite film, it's still incredibly special because not only did it kick off my favorite franchise, but again, all these elements, the relationship with the brothers, the relationship with Reggie, the music, the tall man's performance, the coda. You can't not talk about the coda. Mark, Bob, you're doing a bad job. People are not going to carry on with you. Well, I know I'm trying. You know, probably you shouldn't have a weird third person out of body conversation with yourself right in the middle of the episode because that would confuse people even more. Sorry, I'm back. The coda. Oh, my God. Again, it's another one of these young men's decisions where it's, they could have had any car. They just need the car to get from point A to point B. They have an action scene or two in it. So instead of just getting an easy, reliable car that they know will work for them, it's like, no, I saw, I knew a kid that had a Cuda and I loved it. So fuck it. We're going to put that in the movie too, because why not? And it became along with the sphere, the tall man, all this stuff, a signature element of the series and something that the series as a whole became known for and carried on into the next films. So because this could go on and on and on, and I'm going to, while this is going to be long, I'm going to make some kind of a vain attempt to keep this under six hours. Let's move on to Phantasm 2. So Phantasm 2 from 1988. The synopsis, Mike, now released from a psychiatric hospital, continues his journey to stop the evil tall man from his grim work. That works. Now, unlike the first movie, uh, I don't own quite so many copies of this film. Uh, as of as it stands right now, I only own two. But those two copies are are still quite fun for me. Back back in the day, before the pre before the DVD era, you you just had to go out and find stuff. And while when I started collecting, new VHS were still being released. It unless they were the big like tentpole stuff. They weren't always, you couldn't get them new 
generally. You know, I remember, this will date me, I remember going into Music World when we still had those, and you they would have a VHS horror section of new movies. Now, it was the pretty standard stuff. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies, Friday the 13th movies, Anchor Bay, because it was going strong, they had their movies in there. Uh, Phantasm 1 and 4 would pop up every now and then, usually the first one. But with the other sequels, they weren't easy to find. You you had to find them used, basically. And I remember where I got it, because I for a long time I knew I could tell you the story of where I got all of my tapes. I can still do it to a point, but there's just so many now that I can't possibly retain all that information. I should try that one day, just go through every single movie in my collection and see if I can still remember where I got it. But that's neither here nor there. So in uh, Bridge North, just over the causeway, there's, so I guess it's technically you're in Ennismore now, uh, where for locals uh, will know this geography, otherwise you're like, why the hell is he taking all this time? There's a, uh, a gas station in front of the IGA there, and they had a video store, a rental section, as all a lot of rural convenience stores would have. And they had a section where the movies were for sale. And I remember just, I'd check it out every time I was in there just to, just to see what they had. And one day I went in and they had Phantasm 2. And I just freaked. I remember running up, running around the store with it in my hand. I can't believe I got Phantasm 2. It was such a big deal. And that's actually another, because I have so many of these movies signed by Reggie. Uh, that copy I have signed by Reggie as well. And then the second copy I have, uh, like the first movie, is the actual copy that I saw for the first time that I rented from Blockbuster. So those two are pretty special to me, because not only are they copies of my favorite films, but they're the actual copies that I saw the first time. So that's pretty great. And I've, I was actually lucky enough to see this movie on the big screen. In 2013, when Don Coscarelli was at Festival of Fear, they did a screening of this movie at Bell Lightbox. Because usually when it comes to Phantasm movies, if you're going to see one of them on the big screen, it's the first one that they show. Uh, the Alamo Draft House does it rather, rather semi-regularly. Uh, Don Coscarelli goes and tours around especially when they did the remastered version uh, with Bad Robot of the first one. They did a big tour with all that. So I've seen Phantasm on the big screen twice, I think. But getting to see part two on the big screen was wonderful. It was just great. Because for me, this is where the franchise really gets going. This is where I usually start with my love of Phantasm is, is starting with Phantasm 2. And the the series started to get bigger. Uh, they that came from the fact that this is the anomaly in the series where they had studio backing, and not just studio backing to go direct to video or anything like that. It was studio backing that this was going to be a major movie. This was still low budget by comparison, but this was going to be a big release, full fully backed by a major studio. In this case, I believe it was Universal. So. Because that happened, the tone, things had to change. So the tone of the film and the franchise, they shifted that around from kind of a deranged fever dream that is the first movie to a road movie, to a horror movie on the road. Now, the reasons for this are twofold. And first one is, as I said, because they're a studio involved now, they demanded more coherency in the plot. 
So that means for a studio, the characters have to know where they are and the audience has to know where the characters are. So that dream logic, the dream vibe, the nightmare vibe of the first movie where you didn't really know what was going on, where people were in relation to each other, how they were getting there, etc. That was abandoned for this film, but I don't think it hurt it in any way. And the second, Coscarelli kind of knew he couldn't keep you couldn't just do the same movie again. You don't want to do the same movie over again. I don't think there's a, a huge appeal in that. So to keep this new story together and to move the mythology forward, you have to try something new. In that case, turning the franchise as it would continue for the next three films, these three next films into a road movie. So it's guys get in the car and they have to chase somebody almost a bit of a, a Western vibe. So, You've got these changes coming down from the studio, and that went further. There's not just the the budget is bigger. Uh, Jody isn't back in this one, which makes sense considering he died in the last one. But the biggest difference this time around was the controversial recasting of Mike. So he was replaced in this film by an actor named James Legro, And I'll say right up front. I really like James Legros in this movie. I like his performance as Mike. He's plays him with a lot of confidence, a bit more of a, you could say, standard hero type, where he's kind of firmly in control of his situation. Now, I know like in the community and with the, the filmmakers and stuff, this was a contentious decision, and I know A. Michael Baldwin, who had played Mike in the first movie and then the rest of the series, he took it really badly. He doesn't, still doesn't really talk about this movie when they're doing panels and stuff. He, I remember on the one, I think the commentary for part three, he referred to the second one as uh, the film that shall not be named. But honestly, it, it sure. It would have been nice to see the exact same cast continue the whole time, but it really didn't matter to me at the time. I was like, oh, look, it's the second one, so we have a new mic. Because the studio had mandated that not all of the actors could return. Obviously, Angus Scrim was going to come back as the tall man because he's the central villain, so that was set in stone. But they sent an edict to Coscarelli where if you want the characters of Mike and Reggie in the film, you can have either Reggie Bannister or a Michael Baldwin. So they read Mike for the film, but from what I've read about it, he had been, hadn't been acting for a while, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what it came down to is you can recast Mike to a certain degree, but how do you recast Reggie? He's Reggie's just Reggie. He's an actor. He's been in other films, but in these movies, there's so much of him, that kind of laid back musician vibe, just kind of dealing with the day. But despite the the horrors that he's going through, still kind of an, an upbeat, let's go get him attitude. So at the end of the day, that was a decision that Coscarelli made. And I think it was the right one because I can, nobody, nobody else could play Reggie. It's it's a physical impossibility. There's there's some roles you can't recast because there's just too much of the actor infused in those roles. And this is definitely one of them. Fun Snapple fact though, Brad Pitt actually famously 
auditioned for the role of Mike. And Coscarelli turned him down, obviously. James Legro got the job, which I think is perfectly fitting because uh, I think Brad Pitt's a terrible fucking actor. So that doesn't bother me at all. Contentious to some, sure. They just gave him an Oscar this year, but now I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I've never been impressed with anything else Brad Pitt's done, so I'm not sure why my opinion would change now. We're not here to bash on Brad Pitt. Maybe I'll do that in another episode. Let's start talking about Phantasm 2. So this film picks up directly where the last film left off. After a little bit of a uh, bring us back up to speed, a little preamble of what's going on, we get we start right where we ended the last movie with Mike getting pulled into the closet. And it's it's what's kicked off the this wonderful interconnectivity between the franchises. And I remember watching the second one and seeing this continued scene of Reggie going upstairs to see what happened, and the tall man's there, and they're dragging Mike out, and he blows up the house, and he famously says later, because it was infested with midgets, genius. And I was so balled over by this. I'm like, this guy planned it, because Reggie looked pretty much the same as he did in the last movie, and the house looks the same. Now, the more you watch it, you can tell, well, it's not quite the same house, and Reggie's hair is a little different, and there's odds and ends that don't quite line up. But I was so caught up in that. It's one of the things that's always drawn me to sequels, is this idea of the mythology, of there just being more to the story. And to see such a level of attention paid to connecting the films immediately struck a chord with me. It's one of my favorite parts of this franchise, is that wonderful sense of well loose at some points this great sense of continuity so after we have the this great kind of james bond action opening we have a jump forward in time mike gets out of the nuthouse and we then pretty much hit the gas and the movie just gets going forward so as i said a lot of things changed on this film we have a new actor we have a bigger budget But what also happens in this film is that while Mike is still the driving point of the narrative, his relationship with the tall man, Reggie is starting to move forward and being pushed towards more a much more central role than he had in the first movie. Because the first movie is really about Mike and Jody and their relationship. Without Jody around this time, Reggie's given a chance to really come into his own here. And he's just nonstop great. He steals every scene that he's in. And along with these changes, because we're moving into more of a, I guess you could say, action horror kind of a vibe, not just a a dreamy horror, he he gets to indulge, Coscarelli gets to indulge in some of those tropes that come along with this new structure. And one of those great tropes is the, the heroes suiting up for battle, getting their gear ready to go and fight. And that scene is absolutely wonderful. It's, you know, it, it was made famous, I think, in, the, in Commando with Arnie getting suited up and then Rambo did it and then it was parodied. But here they break into this rural uh, country store, this hardware store, and start getting all the tools that they need. And I, I just, I was obsessed with that idea, that concept of these lone avenging heroes out there on the road just doing the best they can 
But the primary thing that comes out of this scene, and it's one of the central visuals in this entire franchise that people love, and I fucking love it, is Reggie's four-barreled shotgun. It's so impractical. It really is. The recoil on this thing would be fucking insane if he tried to shoot all four barrels. But what he literally does is take two double-barreled shotguns and ties them together. It's that's just insane. It's crazy, but it fits this film so well. Remember there, I think the Speared Brothers film Undead had uh, the one character had three pump action shotguns that he had put together. And I remembered seeing that image going, somebody's seen the Phantasm sequels. Yes, they have. But, you know, Mike makes his his flamethrower, which is kind of cool, but... This whole idea of outfitting themselves for war, and especially with this new gun, is so great. But there's a small detail in this scene that I think could have easily been overlooked. They could have easily left it out, but it's part of this attention to character that Coscarelli always manages to have. And that's they've done all this stuff, they've taken all these things, and as they're getting ready to leave, you see Reggie pop open the cash register. And you have this moment of, is he going to take money too? Because obviously this they're not working while they're out here. Like, they need money of some sort. No. On the way out, Reggie leaves money and pays for everything. That's It's such a small detail, but it reinforces just what kind of people Reggie and Mike are. They aren't hard-edged anti-heroes in any way, shape, or form. They are just straight-up heroes. They're moral and they're loyal, despite the situation that they're in. That never changes them. They could have easily, like, well, we're out on the road where no one's helping us. We could adopt kind of this laissez-faire attitude to the law. But at no point does that happen. You never see them stealing things. If they break in somewhere, it's a dirty old abandoned building. They maintain a sense of heroics. And again, that was something that I found hugely appealing as a young person was watching this. So I've talked about this this move from the dream horror to the road concept. And well, I think it's a, it's a great idea just structurally. It, it added a great new flavor to a series that would is very hard to think about how you're going to continue it. But when you're dealing with low-budget horror or low-budget film in general, especially with this, there's only so many things you can do to increase the scope of a film, especially back in the day. Like nowadays, you can rent a drone and all of a sudden it looks like you have all this crazy equipment. And with digital filmmaking, there's more things you can do to increase your scope. But here you have to figure out, Coscarelli had to figure out how do I increase the scope, not just of the film, but the scope and scale of the tall man's threat. Okay. His threat to the world as a whole. And now that we're in a road movie and we're not just stuck in one town and one's very specific isolated situation, they're moving from town to town and we can see the desolation that the tall man is leaving in his wake and he becomes more of an actual, the physical embodiment of a plague, you know, burning his way through, through the countryside. And those scenes where they're driving, like they're on his trail and following him through these boarded up towns and we, and the graveyard they walk through, that's all been dug up. It's, 
in in terms of big filmmaking, grand filmmaking, they're all very small elements, but they serve to make this film feel very large. While it's still gothic and creepy and contained in a lot of in a lot of ways, these few extra flourishes that he puts in makes the danger feel bigger and makes the canvas these characters are playing on feel bigger. It's that scope, that lar- the enlarging of the world in this film, I think is what really helped it kind of break free of its original roots. And there's not a lot of films that could sustain that. With monster movies especially, you, you have to have some sense of isolation, And whether that's a remote cabin or a house or you're stuck in a nightmare or what have you. But here, he manages to strike this fine balance between this large, almost Western scope of moving from town to town and these highways, but still keeps it very desolate. And these characters are isolated. They're going to meet people and bump into people on the way. Yes, it's a confine of the budget. They can't afford to have big extra scenes and all that stuff. But again, Coscarelli makes it work. He makes it work for the story, where the canvas is bigger, but we the characters still feel alone. They still feel like, you know, an ant trying to chase a bear. And that's a tone that this film establishes and would carry so well into the next film. And also, I think just as a viewer, there's a certain romance to that. I've always, I think with a lot of people, I think it's the appeal for Westerns, but the the American Northwest, Southwest, this kind of vague geography that they're moving through in this film, there's, there's a romance to that of driving a muscle car down a deserted highway and you're not quite sure where you're going. There's a vague, there's a sense of danger at the end, but you're still going to keep going. You know, it's that great line from Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, you know, the man in black fled into the desert and the gunslinger followed. That's really what this film is. The tall man has fled and now they're going to follow him. Just, just fucking awesome. Now, Another great thing that we do here that expands off the first film is we get to see more of the funeral home side to this. We got some of it. We got some great mausoleum stuff in the first movie, but it's one of the central things that inspired Coscarelli to make this film is this weird attitude we have towards death. And we actually get to see some of that this time. We get to see some embalming that they're working on. That scene where they sew the guy's mouth shut, that's a variation on what we actually do. It's its pretty gross, the shit that we do during embalming. It's ridiculous. We get to see the, the cremation when he's smashing the bones up. And a fun little nod to Sam Raimi, it's his name that's on the bag that they're pouring the ashes into. We get to see the crematorium. We get to see spend more time in the funeral home at the end that we get to. And I think that's great because it, it alter it's grounding the tall man in an aspect of the real world. This funeral practitioner of the, of the undertaker. This is a real tangible thing. You can go to a funeral home. You can see this. We know parts of this. But the side of the, the piece of the real world that he's grounding it in is still mysterious. You know, he's not 
a scientist in a lab doing stuff. He's there's a lot of other settings he could have put the tall man in, but by doing it in the funeral home and using these aspects, even though we know it's real, there's still a big air of mystery to the whole thing. Most people don't know or want to know how any of this is done. They just know that their loved one will be taken away and there'll be some kind of a process that's done and they'll bring them back. It's kind of like hot dogs. Most people that like hot dogs don't want to know how they're made. Most people don't want to know how bodies are embalmed or how cremations are done or how the the prep that goes into bodies. And this is just such a, a another wonderful little touch that we get here because it's all meant to deepen the mythology. Along those lines, we get some new characters because the sequel, we got to introduce some new characters. While the characters of Liz and Alchemy are fine, Alchemy plays a larger role in tied in with the tall man. They're good, but I can't help but feel they're only in this movie to serve as love interests. They're not really fully formed characters in any way. I guess to quote uh, Red Letter Media perfectly, they had to show the audience that Mike and Reg have a case of the not gays. And that, that's really all it feels like. The idea that Mike being sensitive to the tall man and some kind of, if not necessarily a psychic connection, but kind of a a psychic vibe that they have for each other, that they can kind of see each other more than the average person can, is Liz has this as well, the, the character in the film. That's neat. That's a wonderful idea. But it's never explored in the further sequels. It's not elaborated on, it's not brought back in any way, which in the scope of the franchise as a whole, it it renders it a little moot, unfortunately. I think that could have been a cool thing to pick up on, that the people that they're interacting with for the rest of the series could be these people that have this sensitivity to the tall man, where others would just kind of walk past him on the street they get a vibe that something's wrong, something's not right. And by that happening, the tall man is able to zero in on them as well. He can sense when his enemies are close. It's still fine. The stuff with alchemy is hilarious. The Reggie's, this begins his never-ending pursuit of trying to get laid. And their sex scene is so ridiculous that it shouldn't work with her slapping his head and, you know, screaming and yahoo, riding him like a horse. But it's funny, you know, and it, this weird, it's not a horror comedy, but this weird tonal vibe that Coscarelli strikes its balance on, it, it fits in, in its own very strange way. So as I said, where certain elements of that mythology that's introduced isn't expanded upon. There are other elements here that he does give some more information and it, it serves a great purpose. They're wonderful to watch the addition of the gravers, the, the guys in gas masks that go out and, and dig up the bodies, the characters, uh, the two guys that work in the funeral home with them, kind of expanding upon the caretaker from the first movie who gets his brain drilled and then pisses his pants, which is delightful because your bowels and your all do let go when you die. That's great. Uh, we get three spheres this time instead of one bigger budget, three spheres for the price of one. And they've also got new toys. They've got the buzzsaw. They've got the laser that can blow things up. They've got, it can 
gets on the guy and bores through him and then goes up through his torso and out his mouth, which is great. The We see more of the red dimension this time when they go through the dimension forks, the tuning forks. The big, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the big chrome pylons that they walk back and forth through. The dwarves, because of a higher budget, have a better look. We actually get to see kind of this monstrous vibe to them this time, this look. It's full prosthetic suit, wonderful suits. Whereas in the last one, they were just kind of kids in hoods, and then when you saw the hoods pulled back, they were just people in, like, blue gore makeup. Here, they're full-on realized monsters. It also doubles down on the body-swapping aspects with with a female character, this time with alchemy, and also his ability to come back after his body is destroyed, which we get this awesome fake-out ending. Now, that would be expanded upon in the in the other, the other films when they explain how that happened. But by doing all this, it could have easily felt like, oh, I'm just, just throwing stuff in. Just kitchen sink. It's a sequel. Fine. Let's throw it in. And that might have been the intention because we know now in hindsight that this stuff wasn't plotted out and planned out in advance, despite how connected it all feels. But what it does is it creates an air for the tall man where his powers aren't set in stone. They're fluid. And I don't think it's a cop-out in any way. I think it just adds to his mystery. Because when you have a character like this, where they're using some kind of supernatural ability, some you could say some kind of magic or what have you, there's usually a pretty defined limit to what they can do. You know, we look at someone like Freddy. If you fall asleep, he has a complete control over your dream reality. He can conjure anything he wants, become anything, but they're still very restricted. You have to be asleep for him to do this. Okay? Set in stone rules. Jason, once he becomes zombie killer Jason, you can set him on fire, shoot him, rip holes in him, all this stuff, and he can survive. Cut off his head, different story. Same thing with someone like Michael Myers. The tall man, though, has a very, you could almost call it in a literary sense, a soft magic approach where his rules and power set are fluid. Again, as I'm repeating myself, not set in stone. And only adds to his mystery. Because it's not like he's just standing there doing rapid fire one thing after another. It's all designed to impact the characters directly. Not just like it's it's a fun show for the audience. Obviously, we're there to be entertained. But... Whenever they think they've got the drop on him, or one of his henchmen, or they've got him cornered, he always manages to flip it on its head and casually come right back at them, creating this sense of kind of inevitability of failure, which is, again, while it's not as dreamy as the first film, it does follow that kind, still has echoes of that dream logic, where just like in a dream, every time you think you're, you're getting ahead, your feet sink in the mud and you find yourself back at square one. And that's what works so well here. And we are left at the end with another great, you know, shock twist ending. You know, the gravers come through the window and pull Mike and Liz out. And it's just wonderful. The second Phantasm film, I know it's a lot of people's favorites, and I completely understand why. From the four-barreled shotgun to the chainsaw fight to when Reggie shoots that gun once, 
in this whole film. But when he finally shoots that gun, oh my God. I Back in the day, like the old internet days, I had a, uh, a frame grab. I think it might have been from House of Horrors when that was still a site. Might still be a site. I don't know. And it was that shot of Reggie on the stairs when he shoots the dwarves. The four dwarves come up the stairs and he fires the gun and all four of them get blown back. That was that was just awesome. You don't need to see him running around shooting that gun every 30 seconds because we've waited the whole movie for him to shoot that thing. And when he does, it's everything we wanted it to be. It's just as cool as it looks. And it does a hell of a lot of damage. So Phantasm 2, I cannot recommend it enough. Honestly, I think if you're going to show people the movies, if they're not a hardcore horror fan, if they're not somebody that can kind of sit through a weird film like the first Phantasm, start with Phantasm 2. It's kind of the Wrath of Khan of the franchise. Great action. The performances all over the place are great. Uh, the new characters work well, even the side characters. The the gore is fun, and, but more magical and creature stuff, not you know just gore for the sake of gore. The tall man is even more menacing this time around. It's probably his most, Angus Grimm's most menacing performance. When he hangs the priest with his own rosary, that's fucking dope. Like you don't, you don't get that stuff in, in most movies without it kind of having a moment of look how blasphemous and tacky we're being. No, it's just the tall man, you know, that wonderful line, you know, you think when you die, you go to heaven, you come to us. It's, he doesn't do much in these series. Tall man, Coscarelli keeps him in reserve, dolls him out in, in small doses. But even just lines like that just enrich this mythology because it leaves us going, okay, we know he's from some other planet or dimension, but he actually has a control, some direct access to our souls when we die. Or, or is he just referring to the bodies? Again, it's, for every question he answers and every hint, every hint that he gives, he opens up three or four more possible avenues. That's something that could have been problematic if he had just continued to let that go. But Coscarelli, not just being a great filmmaker, being a film fan, understood that you can only set so much stuff up before you have to start explaining things. And that brings us to Phantasm Three: Lord of the Dead, where we're going to get some answers. But oh my, do I have some stories tied into this one. So, synopsis out of the way so I don't forget again. Phantasm Three: Lord of the Dead from 1994. Mike and Reggie continue to hunt the mysterious tall man, discovering along the way that the invasion has already begun. Okay, so Phantasm Three is the one film in the franchise that I have the most... How can I say this without sounding like a creepy weirdo? Intimate vibe with, most connected vibe to this. The primary reason for that, and the main reason for it, is this was the last one I saw. It was the hardest one to find. By the time I saw this film, I had seen one, three, and four a lot. I owned those films. I watched them probably one of them at least once a week for a very long time. I knew these films frontwards and backwards. But they weren't easy to get a hold of, at least in the video stores I was going to. Now, one of the reasons for this is there was some kind of clandestine studio fuckery at the time of its release, and Blockbuster refused to carry the film. 
So Blockbuster, by the time I got into it, was dominating the industry, so it was hard to get a hold of it. While there were other video stores in town, my folks weren't just going to pick up and go to these other stores to rent movies. So until I was 18, I couldn't just go and get my own video store membership. So I was kind of bound to the video stores that I had access to. So I'll never forget this. I was staying at a buddy's house, my buddy Andrew Miller, and we went to Hello Hollywood uh, down in Peter Rose South End. Awesome video store. They had an incredible selection. And I remember walking through the store with him and we were in there picking movies, like just renting garbage or trying to find, I think I was 15 or 16 at the time, trying to find movies that had boobs in them or something silly. It might even have been older. But regardless, we're walking through the horror section. We had rented some, we were always looking for Schwarzenegger movies or anything like that. And I'm flipping through the horror movies and there it is, Phantasm 3. Holy shit. So I rented it, gave him the money for it. I'm like, I'm renting this, and I'm going to watch it when you go to bed. So we stayed up watching movies, fucking being kids, and he goes to bed. And I, sleeping in the uh, the spare room, proceed to watch the movie three times in a row. I was up until dawn. I just watched it, finished it, rewound it, watched it again. Three times in one night. And I was just obsessed, just obsessed with the film. And get the road to getting a copy of it myself was even longer. It was years after that. I think I was 18. I'll never forget this day. It was June, maybe 2002. And I had my girlfriend at the time, Jen Lewis, we had been out at, I think, Emily Park doing something for cadets, which is the, I think, the fourth step of guiding. And we were coming back, driving back into town. And we passed the... Uh, there was a little convenience store that's still there across from the Memorial Center, um, uh, Mr. Convenience. And as we're driving by, I see three big bins of VHS out front with a for sale sign on it. And I can still, to this day, I can sniff VHS out even from a moving car. I'm like, stop the car! So we, she slams on the brakes, turns around, pulls in the parking lot. And from these bins, I got my first copy of the R-rated reanimator, I got the unrated Bride of Reanimator, and I got Return of the Killer Tomatoes, each for like a buck each sitting in these bins. I'm like, this day can't get any better. This is just incredible. So we go into the store. I'm like, well, let's just go and look and see. Because if this is what they're selling, what do they have on the shelf still? It's got to be crazy. So we go into the store, and they've still got a pretty healthy horror selection. These guys had been in the game since the 80s, buying movies for the store. And I see it there on the shelf, Phantasm 3. And at the time, video stores, because DVD was really booming, so a lot of stores were starting to sell off their VHS. Not just in used bins, but you could go in and buy movies off the shelf, rental copies. And I would learned at the time that if I would pick a movie up, go to the counter and say, hey, is this rental for sale? I, more often than not, would get told no by these comic book guy clerks that ran these stores. So we found out that if Jen went up to the counter with this movie and cause she was beautiful, obviously still is she's still the same person, but if she would go up to the counter and she would not ditz it up in any way, but put on a little bit of a show, uh, you know, Oh, I know my, my boyfriend really wants this movie uh, and just do this whole thing. And I would watch these goobers who had just told me, no, just fall over themselves to give it to them. 
Now, this wasn't really one of these occasions because the people that owned it, this was a, a grown woman that was behind the counter. And she's like, oh, I don't know. These aren't easy to get. I paid $30 for my first copy of Phantasm Three, And I'm paying for it. And as the interact is going through, I'm literally dancing up and down the aisles of this store. Couldn't believe that I got my own copy. I've since had two other copies that I got on VHS, because anytime I see it, I have to buy it. I can't leave it alone out there in the wild. Then I got the Anchor Bay DVD, etc. So because it took me so long to find Phantasm Three, I had a long time to build the film up in my mind and create kind of my own mythology around this. I'd read things online about it. Every review of the movie I could find, I read because I wanted to know every little detail because each review would might focus on a different scene. So I'd be like, oh my God, that's in it. That's in it. I just, this, I was ready for this movie, like the second coming of Christ. Like I, I know how silly that sounds in the context of, you know, normal everyday life, but this was my whole world at the time was, was collecting horror movies. It was everything that I cared about. And luckily for me, this was every, the film was everything that I wanted it to be. Now I know the movie has its flaws it has a much cheesier tone than parts one, two, and four. I get that. I know a lot of fans kind of look down on it for that because the intentional comedy, Coscarelli really pushed that forward this time in a way he didn't do it in the other films. There's the Home Alone clone, Timmy, who is just murdering at the drop of a hat. There's some pretty obvious continuity errors. Uh, the four-barreled shotgun Reggie threw in the basement of the funeral home, and then they burned it down. And then at the start of the movie, it's just laying there with Mike, and it's a obviously different gun this time. This one's been custom-made. The shotgun shells are different colors. There's the three goofy robber zombies that are played way too much for laughs. But then, and even now... I, I don't give a shit. I, I really don't. I can completely ignore all of those things. And I know it's a bias. Uh, it's right out on Front Street. I know I'm biased because of how long it took me to get this film. I ignored these problems then. I ignore them now every time I watch it. Because each time I watch Phantasm 3, it feels like the first time I'm watching the movie. And there's only, I think there's a handful of films that in your life, every time you watch it, it feels like the first time again that you can, it will perfectly recapture for you where you were and how you felt watching it. Ghostbusters 2 does that for me every time I watch it. There's only a few uh, films that'll do that. Dawn of the Dead is, is another one for me. But I think maybe with horror fans there or hardcore movie people in general, there might be more than a few. But for me, that's, that's Phantasm 3 for me. It... The the cover is cheesy and wonderful with that red and purple, but that's what I think of, kind of like almost in a synesthesia way. When I think of Phantasm 3, I get this warm feeling inside, and it feels like that color, the color of the cover, because that's one of the major things that sticks out for me is the first time I saw that cover out in the wild. So this one... I'm biased, okay? I I know I just don't give a shit. I'm completely biased. I'm so that, that's how this section of the show is going to go. Bob's biased gush fest. So just like part two, uh, this one picks up directly where the last one left off 
which again, seeing that, um, it just further blew my mind. I'm like, oh my God, they're still perfectly connected. It's like one big story. It's like the Evil Dead movies. I was just, just blown away by that. Because this was still a universal show, they still had some money, about half the budget they had on the first one. But because they weren't under the scrutiny this time, they were allowed to kind of stage a bit of a cast reunion. So Michael Baldwin came back uh, to reprise his role as Mike. Uh, Bill Thornbury's back as Jody, uh, sometimes as himself, sometimes trapped in a ball. And it's wonderful to have them back because it brings... It, it feels more like we're back to the vibe of the first one. But this film firmly belongs to Reggie. He, he is the star, 100%. There's, there's no doubt he's not sharing the screen time with Mike. He's sharing the screen time with other actors in this movie. But it's his film. While Mike is back, he drops out of the pro- plot pretty quickly and stays dropped for a good half of the film, if not more. He's out of it. He is Reggie's motivation for everything that he's doing, but he's not with him this time. Reggie's on kind of his solo adventure. And while the new characters of Timmy and and Rocky, they're not great substitutes for the Mike-Reggie relationship, Overall, it still works because by interacting with brand new characters, we get to see more of Reggie's character and we get to see this incredible loyalty that he has to Mike, that that promise he made in the first film, thinking that with Jody gone, that he's going to take care of Mike. He's that hasn't flagged for for a moment. He's watched over him in the hospital when he finally wakes up out of his coma and the tall man starts to come after him. Reggie doesn't hesitate. You know, get the gun, stay behind me. We're going to get you somewhere safe. And then when the tall man takes him, again, doesn't miss a beat. Gets the map out, packs the gun, heads off in the car. That's Reggie. And that's, it was so heroic for me as a kid. I loved Reggie. He was my fucking hero. Hero in a way that people say, like a sports star or Superman or Batman. Reggie Bannister was my hero. In grade 12 drama, we had to do speeches on our favorite actors. So people are getting up there and they're talking about Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock and like, oh, fine. Obviously, Tom Hanks is a legend. But all these very run-of-the-mill performers, the obvious choices. I get up in front of my grade 12 drama class and proceed to do a speech about Reggie Bannister. And believe me, in 2001, it was not easy to find a lot of information on the internet in its fledgling days about Reggie. There were no books, there were no behind the scenes, nothing. I had to dig, dig through the internet to find enough facts and information to to support a whole speech. So with this film, because Reggie's the star, that was just, oh, just pour it on. Like, just fucking, oh, I couldn't believe it. It's just another reason why this film was far and away so important to me. As I've, I've talked before here, uh, I've been speaking to this quite a bit, this issue of our idea of mythology that's being strengthened and enriched as the franchise is going forward. And while Coscarelli had given hints about some of these things in the past, he made a point in this film that he's going to answer questions. 
flat out answer questions. And that's one of the, another one of the great parts of this film is that the mythology is really getting some flesh put on its bones. We have definitive answers now, not just fan theories. We have definitive information now about how some of the mechanics of this universe work. We get the spheres are named now, sentinels. The dwarf creatures are named, lurkers. The grave diggers that work for him, gravers. They're little things, but by having an official name for it, it just further helps to give it a sense of reality. The big reveals this time are, I think there's three of them. Because we have the same kind of interconnected opening, where the movie starts where the last one ended, with the tall man being embalmed with acid, and the funeral home being burned down, we cut right back to that shot, and a new tall man just steps out of the Dimension Forks, and tosses the old body in, and goes back for more fun. So we now know that that's how the tall man can continue to keep coming back. Anytime you kill him, just another one steps out of the dimension forks. This was a a theory that I had had, and I'm going to get super nerdy on this for a moment. But my friend, uh, my buddy uh, and me, Jeff Pearson, who was another, he was a huge phantasm freak along with me. We used to theorize endlessly about the tall man and his powers. And I, my theory, which was, I think, proven to a point with... Uh, Phantasm 5 and Ravager, is that the tall man exists in all realities, all dimensions, at all times. He has a complete, with the dimension forks, he has a complete control over time and space. So if you're, if you cut the tall man's head off at 8.04 p.m. on a Wednesday, the tall man from 8.03 on a Wednesday or eight or 8.02 on a Tuesday can just step out of the dimension forks as that first body's hitting the floor and keep fighting you. That is so wonderful because it just completely untethers the tall man from any kind of physical reality that we could deal with. Our physics that our whole world, the things we touch, see, smell, think about, are rooted in our physical understanding of reality, our our ability to interact with objects and time and matter. Tall Man is completely untethered from all those things. And yes, I'm drawing all of this stuff from what some people might say is a silly movie. But to me, those concepts were just like, blew the back of my head off. I was so stoked on that. And then we get an answer about the the spheres, the history of the spheres and the dwarf creatures. The dwarf creatures are his army. He's compacting them down, which we had kind of an idea about before he sends them back through into the red dimension because of gravity, etc. But he rips their brains out of their head and drops them in the spheres. That's what the spheres are. Each one once was a person. So when we start to see swarms of these things... These aren't just kind of mindless things that he's sending out, flying around and stabbing people. These are slaves. These Each ball represents someone that he has mutilated and desecrated completely. He's destroyed their bodies and enslaved their minds. That's, that's just fucking awesome. That's awesome. Like that, That's such a wonderful thing to, to bring in there. It's a level of detail that technically we don't need. 
we don't need to know how the spheres operate, what their history is. They can just be kind of this mysterious amorphous thing that pops out and kills people when we need it to. But by grounding it this way, it's just, again, I, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but just further establishes how rich this mythology is. And then the third, even though I said that one might've been the third, this is the actual third one. The big thing he answers here is just what is Mike's relationship to the tall man? Because by the third movie, like we, we get it, you know, the second one, Mike wanted revenge. He wanted revenge for Reggie's family, for killing Jody. So that's why they hit the road in the first, in the second movie. It's it's very clear cut and dry explanation. But then at the start of the third movie, the tall man wants Mike. It's no longer they're pursuing him. The tall man comes right out and says, I want him. I don't want him in pieces. I want the whole boy. So he has now been taken. The tall man specifically wants him for something. And we come to find out the tall man's whole purpose with Mike is to turn him into one of him, to make him another tall man, whatever species or whatever he is, whatever's been done to him, he wants in turn to do that to Mike. And that's so fucking smart because they could have easily just kept Mike in kind of this action hero vibe that he had in, in the second movie, you know, just chewing his toothpick, banging blood, trying to dream bang blondes, kicking ass with his flamethrower, you know, a man of action, doing stuff. That would have been an easy road to take. And I'm sure would have probably still made for a fun movie. But that wasn't the primary concern for Coscarelli. It's telling a compelling story and moving the characters forward. It's why I think makes these sequels so rich and the franchise rich as a whole. We don't feel like we're just doing it again. You know, as much as I love the Friday the 13th movies, it's each one is just kind of doing it again. What we did last time in a, in a new and unique way, even with the, the Tommy Jarvis arc over parts four, five, and six, it, it's still just Friday the 13th. And that's what works for Friday the 13th is you're not out to reinvent the wheel. You're out to work out a new dressing for the salad each time around, but you're getting the same salad or a new marinade for the steak, I guess, because you probably should have a meat eating metaphor for Friday the 13th. But with Phantasm, it's deeper. It's character. And the fact that the tall man has been playing this game with them for so long that he's decided that now is the time when they're at their weakest, their most vulnerable to take Mike away and try and start this process. And that's a great full circle to this journey that Mike and these characters have been on. And it's very similar in its setting and context to Phantasm 2. Reggie's back on the road, moving through one desolate town after another. We see some more people this time around, but we're also seeing that they know that something's wrong, that these towns have been destroyed. So even though the budget's smaller on this, Coscarelli's still doing everything he can to expand the scope and the scale and the threat of the tall man. So moving through these, you know, these back roads, these destroyed towns, that Western vibe is still very much alive in this one. And the, the modern American, you know, Northwest and West Coast and stuff does take on kind of a very grand Sergio Leone vibe 
there's a lot of shots, you know, to the setting sun of the car driving down these awesome, in the true sense of the word, awesome landscapes that serves to really isolate Reggie in this real world, but that's still very unreal. Now, I joked about before about Reggie's never-ending quest to try and get laid. While Reggie is a noble character throughout the entire franchise, his behavior in this film is pretty badly dated. Really badly dated. There's a couple of scenes, especially how he's dealing with Rocky, where it's just fucking Me Too moment central. He's pushy and pestery and aggressive and just trying to get laid. And and it's a, it's a shame because the franchise as a whole is aged very well. It because it has such a unique strange tone, but watching these scenes, especially this time, I'm just like, "Oh yeah, he does all that stuff." Fuck. So that that's kind of a bummer. And I, you know, you do kind of have to chalk it up unfortunately to just the time and when it was made. But it's avoided so well in the other ones. It, it's a shame it couldn't have been avoided that way here. But it's it's just kind of what we're left with dealing with in this film. But otherwise, Reggie being the central focus and the hero in this movie just kicks ass left and right. Bowling zombies away and getting in fights and getting himself kind of smacked around, which is funny. And then their great final confrontation with the tall man after he delivers some of his best monologues of the whole film. There are series. They're they're short lines, but just seeing him say these creepy, strange, weird things, it's just just fucking wonderful. And then we get another kind of classic phantasm ending after we've seen Mike, you know, with the ball in his head. You know, the tall man was digging at his head or something, doing something weird, doing tall manny stuff to him. And then we this horrible shot where he peels the skin back and there's a ball in his head. And then those wonderful chrome contact lenses that he's wearing that just look terrifying. And we realize that there's been a major change in the franchise has happened now. We're, we're, no, we're no longer going to be maintaining this kind of fun, hit-the-road vibe anymore. If we're going to get before we knew there was ever going to be a Phantasm 4, if there was going to be one, we've now moved in a much different direction. Things are probably at their grimmest that they've ever been. And then we go back into the funeral home and the tall man is, he's back, obviously, and we end the movie with Reggie pinned to the wall by an army of spheres. And then Timmy gets ripped through the glass and launched right out of the franchise, which I don't think anybody was very sad to see. So that brings us to Phantasm 4. This is where it all began for me. So this one's pretty special. So again, expect more long-winded ramblings about my personal history with this film. So Phantasm 4, Oblivion, from 1998. Mike travels through time and dimensions to find the tall man's origins. Yep, that's exactly this. So the road to the fourth Phantasm film was a long and winding one. And it actually started with Pulp Fiction. After Roger Avery won the Oscar for the screenplay that he shared with Quentin Tarantino, uh, they asked backstage, like, what's your next project? You know, and everyone famously, I'm going to Disneyland, all that stuff. Well, when Roger Avery was asked that question, he said, I'm going to write the biggest, baddest fucking phantasm movie that anyone's ever seen. So he 
he knew I didn't know any of this until I read Coscarelli's book, True Indie, where he talks about his long history of having known both Quentin Tarantino and uh, Roger Avery from the Southern California film scene. He was in the edit room for and early screenings for both Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, which I didn't know. I'm like, that's awesome. So Avery wrote this script, huge script uh, called Phantasm's End, which would have been a, a big film, big film, really up the threats, make it crazy. Uh, but despite the Oscar win and the the success of the other films, especially because the last one had gone direct to video, like unceremoniously kind of dumped, no one was willing, no studio was willing to take a risk on on this film uh, after it had been kind of sent to die in the direct-to-video market. They sure as hell weren't going to dump a bunch of money into it to do a big-budget spectacle film to to end the series on. So after a lot of false starts, that one kind of died. And during this time, uh, the lab that had printed the original Phantasm was closing the film lab. So they contacted Coscarelli and said, hey, we still have all your trims, all your del- a bunch of your deleted scenes and stuff that we've been storing at the lab. Do you want them? Because otherwise they're going to be destroyed. So he's like, shit, yeah. So he went to get all this stuff and then sat and watched it all. And it mounts to about 10, 15, 20 minutes of, of new footage. So with that in mind, he set about writing a new film, but writing it to include those elements from the first film that up to this point had never been seen. There had been deleted scenes that some people had gotten a hold of, and there's some on the uh, the MGM release of the first Phantasm, but even though those all around the same time. Now, this was twofold. It would help him from a budget perspective because he already had about 15, 20 minutes of the movie already shot, so he wouldn't have to pay to do those things. But it also managed to connect the dots for the whole franchise in a way that I've talked a lot in this episode about the connecting of the mythology and the deepening of it. This movie just took it and spun that wheel right around and made it even more epic and connected. So as I said at the start, and I would tell the story when we got here, so now it's story time. I came to Phantasm IV first. And I know this might be a bold argument, but this film seems almost tailor-made, though completely unintentionally, to be an ideal starting point for fans to get into this series, especially if you're looking for something that's very interconnected and rich. You get a good primer at the start that shows us scenes from all the other movies and brings us up to speed. And now, while you're getting that, and while we know in hindsight that the film wasn't, the series wasn't plotted out in advance, when I saw this film the first time, I truly thought that all of this was planned out, that he knew exactly where it was going to go from film to film, and he had shot these scenes back in 1978, knowing that if I ever get to the fourth film, I'm going to be able to use this stuff to connect all of these dots and completely tie the first film and the last film together. And by doing that, make you rethink everything you thought you saw in all of the films. That was mind blowing to me as a, as a kid, as a young person watching, getting that revelation. And 
I know, as I said, we know that wasn't the case, but going into it cold, I truly believe that that's what was happening. And I think the major benefit from that is this franchise did what almost no other franchise, especially in horror, managed to do, is that the first four films were written and directed by the same person. And other than one casting tweak along the way, the same core cast remained as well. So you're getting this visual growth of these characters as they're aging over the course of the story. And that just further enriched. I know you're probably tired of hearing me say words like enriched and deep in the mythology, but it, it's, I can't overstate how important that was to me when I saw these films the first time. And I think it's one of the major things that people love about this series. And that's honestly what hooked me. Uh, again, with my, my obsession with sequels to me, this was the ultimate exercise of that, the ultimate show of just how powerful a franchise and a series could be in terms of its interconnectivity. Because you can, just like the first three Evil Dead movies, you can edit these movies together and watch them as one long story from one, two, three, and four. They all edit together. You take out the, you know, some of the little primers, you know, the recaps at the start of each movie. And it just turns into one long story, like reading a book series. And that was endlessly appealing to me. And it's still endlessly appealing to me every time I come back and watch these movies. I said before this, this visible aging, and I think it's obviously Mike is older, but he doesn't look much older than he did in the third one. Angus Scrim has visibly aged over the course of these films, obviously from 1978 to 1998, he was, you know, in his forties or so when they did the first one. So he's going to age, but they use it to a great advantage here. His performance this time around as the tall man, for the most part, for about 90% of the film, it's much, much more subdued. He's still has an authority, but it's less intentional menace and more of a confident father figure. It's kind of this effortless patience he has with Mike because he knows he's going to win. He has control over time and space. He's already won. He's just letting this game kind of play out. And that is further brought to bear with this great flashback scene. Cause as the synopsis says, we've got to find out the origins of the tall man. And while Coscarelli answered some questions last time, he fucking lays all the cards out on the table this time. And we, we find out the actual origins of the tall man going back to this civil war era, gentleman scientist undertaker, Jebediah Morningside and how he invented the dimension forks and, passed through them and never came back, at least not as Jebediah Morningside. And I can't tell you how many times I've watched this movie. So many times. And I just noticed now on this watch that Jebediah Morningside's cufflinks is, that's the tall man's tie pin. <laughs> You'd think that's something I would have picked up on before watching, like, before this time. So I've been watching this movie for 20 years. And I finally just noticed that, which is just, just great. Scrim's performance. This is probably his best performance of the whole franchise because he's, again, like I said, he's so confident 
and so patient with Mike as he's just this one speech after another, like this is, this is happening. This has already happened. It will always happen no matter what you do. And his relationship with Mike here is central. Well, Reggie still has a very prominent role in the film. This is once again, it's a story about Mike and a Michael Baldwin really rises to the challenge in this film. It's for so many of them, it's their best performances. He gives Mike such a character depth this time, such a beleaguered sense of sadness and these tired he's just he knows he is going to lose but he is going to go out fighting he never gives up you know even when he hangs himself it's just to draw the tall man out and that's what he keeps doing this whole movie is just drawing him out and trying to get as many answers as he can out of him before he has to have this final confrontation and while the Reggie stuff is a little more fun and action-packed, like he fights the cop zombie and meets up with his, his love interest this time around, and we get that awesome scene with the balls coming out of her boobs, which seems so obvious that it took them four movies to get to, but it's just so great. And we get the return of the tuning fork, and Reggie gets hurt this time, full-on hurt. The ball stabs him in the hand, and that adds to this layer of threat. You feel a, a sense of finality with this film that this wasn't just another sequel. I know when they were making it, there was kind of hope that maybe they'd get to do more, but I think there was also a sense that this is probably the last one. So we have to try and wrap everything up as much as we can. And that means digging into the characters. And I know at least for Mike, this is the story that I've wanted to see with Mike since the first movie. It's the perfect continuation, I think, because tonally and visually, we're back to that kind of dream logic of the first film. And he really brings that out in the character this time, that this is not the action hero from the first one, or the second movie. It's not kind of the, I'm beleaguered and lost and overwhelmed, like in the third one. This is the kid from the first movie as an adult that's gone through all of this. And that's just wonderful to see along with this kind of return to the first movie and like the character perspective, the tone, as I'd said, has shifted back. And while I love the road aspects of parts two and three, it's one of my favorite parts of the series. We still get some of that this time, but we're moving back to the roots of the series. And by doing that and give this, you know, moving away from kind of the straight ahead stories of two and three. Well, they have their own sense of weirdness and strangeness and they're immensely lovable for that. That dream logic is back full tilt on this. And because we're, he's bringing in footage from the first movie, jumping between dimensions, seeing these character interactions, it's really forcing us to figure out just how much of this was real was how much of this was planned by the tall man. What did he let happen? Why did he let it happen? And I think that comes to a head specifically in one scene when Jody, back as the ball, is guiding Mike through these alternate dimensions. He takes him back to the night where the tall man became the tall man. When Jebediah Morningside went through the dimension forks and walked back the tall man. And 
he steps back into his house in the past. And Jody's like, go, get out of here, man. He's going to see you. And he looks around the room and then sees Mike, even though they're not in the same dimension. He can see him. And Mike backs off through the dimension forks. And he has this wonderful line that you could just say is a fun line. But if you really dig into it, I think it means something more. And he says, and so it begins. Because if this is the first time that the tall man came to earth and as the tall man, not as Jebediah and sees Mike there, he can look out across the entirety of time and space. And he's no, that means he's known about Mike since the civil war. He knew that eventually he was going to run reconnect with this character. And that means everything in the subsequent movies that happened, he allowed to happen. He allowed that game to play out for his own amusement. That's fucking crazy. That's huge that Coscarelli manages to to make that work. That is so ambitious because it's basically what he's doing is he's rooting the entire thing in a predestination paradox. That's time travel. Like you go back and, you know, bang somebody and they turn out to be your father in the future or whatever, or your mother, etc. It means you to be born, you had to go back to do that. Uh, Terminator, the perfect example of predestination paradox. That's takes a phantasm now takes an air of that that the tall man knew it. This was all destined to happen and nothing else could have happened. But also the only reason that the tall man ever became aware of Mike is, and decided to be where Mike is in 78 is because Mike was there in 1998 and came back into the past to see him. It's that's, that's crazy. If you start to think about that loop that, you know, Mike's in this situation because his experience with the tall man in 1978, but he's only had that experience because of what he did in 1998. Does that make any sense? Am I rambling? I'm really excited. Also kind of cold. It's a little chilly in my room. But anyway, throughout all this weirdness and this excellent use of the footage from the old movies, the old movie, there's echoes of Roger Avery's unproduced um, phantasm script. Namely in the scene where we see the tall man walking down an abandoned Wilshire Boulevard. And they stole that scene total guerrilla style. Where I think it was Easter morning, they went and just street was abandoned, sun was up. And you get this incredibly epic shot of the tall man walking up this abandoned street with L.A. there in the background. It's amazing. It's not blue screen. It's old school done that way. And you get a sense of reality because they grab the shot that way, that it exists. And then Jody makes a comment that we can't stay here. There's a risk of infection, which is, again, that's a holdover from that unproduced script where it was this plague that was going around that the tall man had unleashed and it'd make people's heads explode. We get echoes of that in the fifth one. But anyway, that's done to a much less successful degree. So this film, as I said, it's all about wrapping things up and tying it all together. And this final confrontation where Reggie suits back up as the, in his ice cream man suit, which is so great because you have this sense of finality to it. Like he knows this time he's probably walking to his death for Mike and that he'd stand with him. Mike even says, thanks for standing with me. Mike's like, already says, don't mention it. 
Like that's just how it is. And you know, tall man rips the ball out of Mike's head after Mike tries to blow him up, blows him up, but another one just comes through and they're like, we're done. Can't do it anymore. And tall man picks Reggie up and it's one of my favorite lines in any movie. And he says, ice cream, man, it's all in his head. And tall man takes the ball, walks through the dimension forks, camera zooms in on Mike. And then we're back to 1978. Mike's walking around in the dark, looking up at the wind, and can hear dialogue from the fourth movie. Reggie drives up, picks him up, they get in the car. Remember, these are scenes that were shot in 1978, not intended to be used this way. And as they're driving, Reggie's now looking around, hearing these lines. He's like, did you hear something? And Mike's this, this knowing, confident smile on his face. Just the wind. Just the wind. But boom, like that's crazy that I was so blown away by this film. Absolutely blown away. It's a perfect conclusion. I know we always want more. We want more sequels. We want more adventures. But this film wrapped its franchise up in such a perfect way and in a confident way, in a character driven way that it created this perfect loop that we we don't know. Like Mike and Reggie just drive off into the darkness and that's it. We're done. Perfect. Absolutely perfect conclusion. They could have left it there. As much as me as a fan, I would have loved to have seen some of the other versions of a fifth film that they talked about over the years. The ones with Bruce Campbell that got close to being made. Some of these other ones. But personally, Phantasm for me stops with part four. I want more. But as we learned with part five... Sometimes it's when you sink the basket, when you, you know, when you hit such a monumental home run, sometimes it's best to just let it lie. So that brings us to the fifth and final installment of Phantasm, which the, in the plot summary on IMDb, literally the first one is the final installment of the long running series. Okay, yeah, that's basically it. Let's get the title out of the way uh, before we go any further. Having Oblivion as the title of part four was cute. It worked by fitting the Roman numerals for four into it. Uh, it also worked in a thematic way. It fit. Oblivion, that's what this is. It's a, the Mike and Reggie are, and Jody, they're riding into Oblivion. It worked. Trying to do it again here is, is just pandering. And I'm going to come back to this a lot, this word pandering. What is a ravager? Really? Uh, If they had have made that something central to the film, it could have worked. If the tall man had a device called a ravager, or there was a character that worked for the tall man called a ravager, then okay, I would buy that title. Instead, to me, it's, well, we did this with the Roman numerals last time. We'll do it this time again. Yay. Uh, this one hurts. This this film hurts because there had been so many stops and starts. Uh, it was just the ultimate. Phantasm Four was like the ultimate blue ball experience for fans, where there were every few years there'd be rumblings, false starts, get got close to it a couple of times, uh, but it always just fell apart. Uh, there was footage from a script reading that was leaked 
of Mike talking to the tall man with some balls flying around. Nothing came of that. That version of the film wasn't made. I remember going to see this at uh, the review because it it went straight to video, but it did have a lot of indie theaters did screenings of it so fans could get a chance to see it. I wanted to love this film so much. And I, it's important that I point that out. I wanted to. I went in with a very open mind uh, with this film. But from the moment I saw the trailer, uh, he, I knew something was wrong. It looked cheap. It looked like what it was. Something that was shot on digital video with a director that didn't have the skill sets to do what they were trying to do. Now... I know this film wasn't initially made to be a fifth phantasm. Uh, Don Coscarelli was friends with a man named David Hartman who directed this film. And he, Hartman approached Coscarelli about doing a series of either uh, web shorts or spe- something that could be used as a special feature called, I believe, Ready's Adventures where it would just kind of focus on some kind of ongoing, not 100% alternate continuity adventures that Reggie could have. And so in secret, Coscarelli and Hartman went out, wrote some scenes, shot some stuff. And then at some point along the way, Coscarelli decided, no, this should be the full film. We can get a bit of money together, get the actors back together, shoot some connective tissue and turn it into a film and just throw in a bunch of stuff that the fans have wanted to see, and that's what they'll get. I, again, I really wanted to love it. But from the trailer, I knew something was wrong, and from the opening shot, I knew something was wrong, because it just looked cheap. It just looked cheap. The other films, despite budget constraints... Coscarelli had always managed to maintain a, a level of dignity and class, even just the visual style. Uh, he used his the budget constraints to his advantage to force creative solutions to problems. It's because he's a seasoned filmmaker, and even when he wasn't seasoned, he still understood films. And he's a natural storyteller, a natural director. David Hartman is not. He's an animator. He directs animation. Uh, I'm not saying that's an easy job, but it, they're two very different things. And it's just, it's bad. It's a bad film. You know, right from the start, we hear Reggie as he's walking out of the desert. Somehow, we're back to the end of Phantasm Four. You know, he took everything from me. My job, my fam, what, your job? That's really the first, some of the first dialogue we get from Reggie. He's worried that the tall man took his job. Oh, yes, because he's an ice cream vendor. Fans know that about him. So that's what we must care about, too. (sighs) Some of this might have worked if it had just been a cute little series of shorts, like like it had been initially planned. But by promoting it to a full-fledged sequel, it's inevitably, it has to be compared to the other films. That's just what it has to do. And it completely falls apart. I know some fans were just, they're, the kind of fans are just happy to have something else and they're not going to be looking at it with any kind of critical gaze in any way, shape or form. But honestly, watching this movie in the theater uh, as a fan, 
I, I felt insulted, and I hate saying that because I love this franchise so much. I love the actors. I love Don Coscarelli as a filmmaker. All these people, everything about this series I love. And I know their heart was in the right place. I know it is. When they made this, they made it with the best of intentions. And there are a few good scenes in this film. There really are. The scenes with Reggie and Mike in the old folks' home or in the, at the mental institution. The scenes of Reggie in the hospital bed talking to Jebediah Morningside. That despite terrible dialogue, those are interesting scenes. This idea of Reggie later in life suffering from dementia. So he doesn't know if any of this actually happened to him. Was it the tall man just putting them in a loop? Or was it actually all just in his head? like they say at the end of the fourth film. That, that's an inspired idea. It, and it gives Reggie some of the best scenes he's had in the entire franchise. Genuinely so. Some of these moments that he shares with Mike. I think if Coscarelli had have taken those concepts and worked it into a complete film with a decent budget, it could have worked. And it's it's easy to blame a lot of problems in this film on its budget limitations, but a lot of films have overcome that. The phantasm films as a whole have overcome budget limitations for it, for its entire existence. But I, I just cannot fathom how a filmmaker like Don Coscarelli and the people involved with this looked at the dailies for this film looked at the edits and the effects, the CG. And I know David Harbin did it all himself, spent years in secret working on all this stuff. And I know it was a labor of love. And again, I know their heart was in the right place, but I can't fathom how they looked at this stuff and went, yep, this is a worthy addition to the franchise. This is going to be the penultimate phantasm. This is what the fans have waited almost 20 years to see. I I can't, I honestly can't understand that because all it really feels like is an overzealous fan film. And instead of truly pushing the franchise forward and giving us a creative solution, we just get a series of name drops and references. And, oh, look, Reggie's really obsessed with this CUDA, even though it's a different CUDA than in the fourth film. He's talking about, you know, we're just referencing other things from the franchise. There, there's no additions to anything. Like, yes, we get we see the big ball in the sky leveling cities. Some of that stuff is cool, but it's... Oh, I'm having trouble here because I'm trying to be nice, but I really can't. I Again, I think we could have had a good film. We really could have if Coscarelli had have taken the reins of this story and had a proper budget. But what we're left with is uh, it's a fan film. It's hearts in the right place, but that's not enough for me. Maybe if I was younger, maybe if I was coming to the franchise now with the world of digital filmmaking that we live in, but I, I can't ignore these technical problems and the cheapness of everything. You know, we, we have a visual grammar in, in film 
that's been developed over a hundred plus years where our, we're trained as an audience to see how scenes connect, how film, how shots move, how characters interact with each other in different shots. That's why, why the difference between watching a film that feels smooth and a film that feels choppy or looks cheap and weird. And that's what happens here. It, it looks sloppy. The, the digital format, by being able to have such freedom where you're not, you don't need all the gear and everything that you once needed. Some filmmakers can make that work to their advantage quite well here. It it feels like a film student made it. It's I, I know that they were trying to get back to the roots of the first movie and like, let's just go out there and get it and try stuff. But the limitations of the format of film of 16 and 35 millimeter, it forces a a level of restraint that's it's dictated by the format. You you can only run around and move so much without the right gear and equipment before things start looking hackneyed and strange. And it's the whole thing just was wrong. It's it's filled with leftover elements from the other unproduced scripts. We see the battle cuda, the giant spheres, the plagues with the head exploding, but you know, Reggie shooting guns with obviously CG bullets. Why does he have a sword? You know, why does he have all these machine guns? You know, the the girl he picks up, again, in his never-ending quest to get laid, even though she's young enough to be his daughter this time. I'm sure the actress that played her is nice, but it, it's porn-level acting. Like, it, it's just, it's bad. It's bad. I, I'm, that's my biggest struggle with this film. And I have a hard time understanding how they allowed it to be released. I, maybe they did it for Angus to to give him one final round as the tall man. But maybe if those scenes were isolated, shot a little better, and just kind of offered as a, you know, he, here is 10 minutes or a 20-minute Phantasm short where we took all that money we would have dumped into a full feature film and shot a little 20 minute addendum of pure character stuff to kind of give fans one last go around. I think that would have been a better route. Uh, instead we're left with this and I can't, I can't say anything nice about it. And I hate it. I hate that so much. You know, we, we get it's cameo Rocky from phantasm threes back. And to me that was fun. I'm like, Oh shit, phantasm three. That that's, that's my jam. But She's back, and we still haven't learned anything about gender and sexual dynamics by this point. You know, all the 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 short actor just sexually harasses her the whole time, and she's back in the movie, but she doesn't share a scene with Reggie. Like that to me is like what what's going on? It's yeah, and then there's and a rap song over the end credit. I don't know. I'm going to stop talking about Phantasm Five because it's pointless. It's 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 bumming me out. It genuinely is. I'm upset right now, even talking about it. That brings us to the end of the Phantasm discussion part of this episode. I for me, it's one to four. Uh, if you're if you're diehard, you can look at the the fifth film. You can look at Ravager, but to me, it's not part of the franchise. It, it's really not. It it can't be. It, I just I ignore it. I'm happy that I won't have to watch it again, unless you're a little masochistic. Again, I love Coscarelli and everyone involved, but no. 
Future of the franchise. Well, Angus Grimm, rest his soul, is he's departed us. He's gone off to the uh, Red Dimension. Honestly, I don't think a franchise like Phantasm could exist in the modern world. Not uh, not in terms of continuing its storyline or in maintaining the tone and the, the quirky humor of the whole thing. I think it's too innocent as it is for, for today's world. Um, it's an anomaly of a franchise that managed to hold itself together despite being made in three separate decades. It maintained this strange little self-identity uh, and its own sensibility. I don't think you could do that anymore. Uh, I, I honestly don't. And you can't make a Phantasm film without Angus Grimm. Unless somebody was to go back and do a brass tacks reboot of it, which I think could work you if you had the right story to it and really playing up the the dream aspects, maybe with a, a decent budget. I think, though, there'd be a tendency to make it more mean-spirited because the tall man, you could get away with that nowadays. But I don't think that's right. I think that honesty and openness of the originals is a liability now, and they would have to make it mean and dark and nasty. And I think that charm would be lost because it's charming. Even through all of its ups and downs, the the downs become charming. They become uh, an integral part of the series that you it couldn't function without it. And I... I would recommend the series to anybody, but I, I'd be hard-pressed to think about how you could redo it or how you could continue it forward. I think, it's, I think we've all seen that it was done and fine after part four. By trying to continue it, we got what we got. So it's probably best not to go back for a further swing. So, whew, two hours in. I hope you guys are still with me. I know it got a little grim there in the last one. But, uh, yeah, that was fun. I've waited a long time to unburden myself of, uh, of my phantasm, uh, obsession. Uh, I could go on and on and on, but I'll try and get through the rest of this as, as quickly as I can. So on to deep space nine, episode 10, the Negus aired March 21st, 1993. Uh, this is a Ferengi episode, very Ferengi focus. It was the first of what would become many episodes. Uh, Iris Stephen Bear, the showrunner on Deep Space Nine, kind of set a goal for himself over the course of the series that he was going to redeem the Ferengis from how they were presented in, uh, in Next Generation and how that uh, attempted presentation of them really fell on its face. And they were a bit of a joke. Uh, the big thing they introduce here is uh, Grand Negus Zek, played wonderfully by uh, Wallace Shawn, who is the, uh, the president, I guess you could say of the Ferengi Alliance. He is their financial leader. Like some, like the Bajorans have, uh, the Kai who is their spiritual leader. The, the Ferengis have a financial leader and it's just wonderful. He's hilarious in everything they do. I love the Ferengi episodes. We get a little glimpse of how the lovable oaf that Rom would become. That's Nog's dad. The, the B plot in this one, uh, focusing on Jake and Nog's friendship is great because Deep Space Nine really focused on over the course of the series, uh, as I've said before, this this interconnected and deep character drama between not just people but between species, and you know Next Generation would do stuff like this where they would you know have to find some kind of a common ground 
to resolve this episode's problem. Uh, usually they would find that common ground because Picard would uh, give some kind of moralizing speech and they would realize that they were wrong for not thinking the way Picard thought. But here, there's not too many species in the Star Trek universe that butt heads like the Ferengis and the humans do because they're so polar opposite. And the Ferengis, because they're conniving and devious and greedy, are very much a representation of how humans used to be in the Star Trek universe. And the uh, Nog's dad and Cork don't like that he's friends with Jake. Captain Sisko and the command crew doesn't like that Jake is friends with Nog because the their species are so different to each other. But Jake and Nog, none of that matters to them. They're just kids being kids. And they make references occasionally to the difference in how their species deal with society and deal with their own internal mechanics and politics of their own society. But most of the time, it doesn't matter at all to Jake and Nog. And that's wonderful because that kind of, I don't want to say just racism, but that kind of prejudice that the the humans and Ferengis have for each other is completely lost on children because prejudice is a taught behavior. It's not something anyone is born with. A Ferengi child isn't born to think anything evil about humans and vice versa. That all has to be taught. And for a group of people like the Federation, they think themselves so evolved and mighty. And they get a nice little reminder here that no, we all harbor our own prejudices for other species, even when we're out there pretending to be so worldly and such an ally to everybody. And what is this evil thing that Jake and Nog are up to and Captain Sisko gets so bent out of shape about? Jake's teaching Nog to read. Just bam. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. That's probably, that's the heart of, of this episode. Just great character stuff. The the Ferengi nonsense is, is good fun. Grand Negus comes to the station, uh, appoints Cork as the Negus, and then fakes his own death. And he does all of this just to test his son to see if he's ready to take on the post of Negus. Puts Cork through all this rigmarole and bullshit, because of course he does. That That's what Ferengi do. And we learn more about them. This is the first time it's mentioned that when they die, they uh, vacuum desiccate their remains and then sell them to people as a memory, as a memento. It's just, it's just great. This one's fun. It's, it's something after the embarrassment that was last week's episode, this one is firmly a Deep Space Nine episode. They, the Ferengi are uniquely treated on this series and they have enjoy a wonderful arc over the course of seven seasons. So definitely worth checking out. Great. Absolutely great. So for a book, I read Caitlin Doughty's Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. And to keep with the theme of funeral homes and stuff, this is a memoir of, you call it a memoir, of her getting into the funeral business. It's a nonfiction book, and it follows her journey of being kind of this outsider weirdo and getting a job working at a crematorium. She didn't know what she wanted to do in the funeral industry. She just knew she wanted to work in it. And it's a fascinating read, uh, namely because I, I know someone that went into, into that business, uh, my friend Leanna. And I'd heard her stories and saw her textbooks and all this stuff. And it's a weird, grim business. But 
she manages to to paint it in this very strangely human light where you're involved in some very grotesque things. You're cremating uh, fetuses and human heads and body parts, and you have to go and pick up, you know, rotting corpses that have been left in people's houses. And, but you see the humanity that exists on, on this side, on that side of the, uh, the funeral home doors. But the big push of the book, and it's something I believe she's carried on forward in her life, is to change, her big thing becomes about changing people's interaction with death. Because the death experience that we know of the funeral director embalming bodies and sweeping them away and taking death out of our living room, that's a rather modern concept. Uh, Embalming took off after the Civil War, and the funeral home business kind of sprung up around that where we used to, if someone died, you, the body was at home. We, you would wash the body and clothe it and it would be kept in the home until burial. So we had a very intimate understanding with, of death and interaction with dead bodies. They were tangible to us. Death was a real thing. Now it's so swept aside and it's so artificial you know, pumping chemicals into bodies to preserve the memory of a loved one. It's all very strange. And she gets into that and eventually leaves the crematorium because she wants to go to uh, funeral services school to study that and realizing that that's just as broken, you know, that it's, it's financially motivated and that it's not about getting a proper understanding and relationship with death it's about ignoring it and pretending that it's not happening. You know, they're not corpses, they're guests. There are all these different terms that are used to alienate people. And she speaks wonderfully, interweaves all this information with her own sense of alienation in the world. And brutally honest, there she's not, she doesn't pull any punches. It's a very raw story, considering how that it's nonfiction. She doesn't hide any of her own personal problems, how her own depression and anxiety. Absolutely excellent read. Uh, I can't recommend this one enough. This was uh, given to me as part of my book swap with my friend Tuesday. And I just finished reading a book called Stiff, which is about the uh, curious life of human cadavers and the history of cadavers as medical experiments and all this other kind of stuff. So she's like, you have to read this one then. And excellent. One of the best books that I read last month. So check it out recommendations to try and get us out of here as quick as I can. So for movies, stay on theme. I would recommend Don Coscarelli's Bubba Hotep and his adaptation of David Wong's John Dies at the End. Both absolutely excellent films. Bubba Hotep, uh, may, you may hear me talking about that uh, in a couple of months. It's an absolutely great movie. Uh, Elvis and J- Black JFK in an old folks home fighting a soul-sucking mummy. Brilliant. And John Dies at the End is incredible. Uh, Read the books. Can't recommend those enough, but just excellent. Uh, For book recommendation, I would recommend Phantasm Unauthorized. It's basically an encyclopedia about the entire series. It's unauthorized technically, but everybody involved in the franchise contributes to it. And it is insanely detailed. Insanely detailed. So if you are a hardcore Phantasm fan, that's what I would recommend. 
if you're a bit more of a casual fan but still want something very in-depth, uh, Rumor uh, produces uh, these. They're not, well, I guess they are books uh, in their Rumor Library series. And John Bowen wrote one uh, about Phantasm. And if there's a bigger Phantasm fan in the world than me, it's John Bowen, one of the writers for Rumor Magazine. Absolutely incredible writer. He's been one of my favorite writers for the entirety that I've been reading Rumorg. And his depth and knowledge of the Phantasm franchise and his ability to articulate it is wonderful. The book is great, covers all the movies, interviews with the cast, director, the tall man. He wrote both cover stories, the, both times that uh, Phantasm's been on the cover of Rumorg. You can order it through the Rumorg website. Check it out. Coming next week, um, after this, uh, the bananas that the last couple of episodes it's been, this has been, we're going to slow things down a little bit. Well, I guess I did searchers last week, so I'm going to slow it down for a little while. So for episode 11, I'm going to be talking about one of the best monster mashes of all time and one of my favorite horror films, Freddy vs. Jason. Yes, the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman of the modern age. So that should be fun because I've got a lot of wacky stories tied into that one. So check it out. Until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Same with on the iTunes website. Uh, drop me a message, comment, share, like, meme, gif. Are kids still gifing? I, I don't know what the internet does anymore. It's a terrifying, strange place. But I want to thank you guys again for joining me on this very long journey. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I love this series. I hope if you're not familiar with it, that I didn't spoil too much. But these movies have been out for 40 years. Like, get on board. So until next time, thank you. And remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken. Have you seen it? Have you? Wicked game. It's wicked game.